I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, a dreamer graduates. Immigration reporter Tatiana Sanchez is here, and we're going to talk about Jirayut Lativangskorn, the first undocumented graduate of UCSF's medical school in its 155-year history. How did he do it, and what does his story say about President Trump's immigration crackdown? We'll be right back. Tatiana Sanchez, thanks for joining us. First time on the program. Thanks for having me. Tatiana is our immigration reporter, and obviously you've been very busy. Uh, This is your first year at The Chronicle. And I wanted to talk to you about your incredible story on Jiriyut Lativangskorn, the first uh, undocumented student to graduate from the UCSF School of Medicine and its history. What drew you to this story and why, why was it important to tell? So this was a great instance of ask and you shall receive. Um, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's graduation season. Let me reach out to my sources and see if there's anything, anyone out there who's worth highlighting, you know, maybe a DACA recipient or an immigrant or a son of immigrants uh, who has an interesting story to tell because I am personally a big fan of these uh, inspirational stories. And um, so I reached out to a few of my sources, and lo and behold, one of them gets back to me and says, actually, tonight I'm on my way to a graduation for new. And she tells me about this amazing student who is graduating from UCSF, who happens to be the first undocumented immigrant accepted into the school who is now graduating. And, you know, that immediately piqued my interest. And the next day I confirmed it with the school. And sure enough, he was the first one who was graduating. And I just thought it was obviously a huge inspirational story, but also a great opportunity to highlight a DACA recipient, you know, who is now graduating into the professional world. And you said new. That's uh, Jerry. It's nickname that everybody everybody calls him. Yes, of course, that's one of the things that I asked him. Where did you get your nickname? Thinking that, you know, he had chosen it here once he got to the U.S. But actually, in Thai culture, people are given nicknames at birth. And that was the nickname that his parents chose for him. And each of his siblings has a nickname. And that's what they go by normally. He usually does not use Jiriyut. He uses New. Tatiana, take us back to the beginning. How does New come to the United States? So his parents brought him and his two older siblings to the U.S. illegally when he was nine. And the siblings did not know that they were here to stay. That was something that the parents chose would be better uh, for them to not know. My name is Jira Yu Latibongskorn, and I am a recent graduate from UCSF Medical School. I was born in Thailand and spent nine years of my life there before my family decided to move to the United States. Um, The year was 1999, I was nine years old. When we first moved here, I think for my parents, they were trying to explore whether or not it would be at all feasible um, to stay in the United States, to make a permanent move and and migrate here. And I think there was some part in their mind where they were trying to learn more about you know, what they thought in their head, the the um, educational opportunities and then career opportunities um, that uh, they would have and that we, their kids, would have. And so I think once they figured out that it was a risk worth taking for our family, they, I think, did what they could in terms of um, this was a few months after um, I had t- 
come to the United States, and they sat us down in a family meeting and said, actually, we are going to move, we are going to stay here in the United States, and we're not going back to Thailand. I mean, you know, and I think as a nine-year-old kid, I remember thinking, what about my friends? What about my toys and, and my life back home? Um, uh, you know, but I think that they were being as honest as they could in saying that this is what we needed to do as a family in terms of starting over, um, in terms of having the future that they want for us. And um, I think we we understood that to be true, you know, even though we didn't know the implications of being undocumented, uh, becoming undocumented immigrants, and all of the of, of what that would mean. So he tells so many stories of how difficult it was for him and his family in the beginning because they were essentially underground. He was taught that it was something you should not talk about. You should not get in any sort of trouble. You should not tell anyone about your immigration status. You know, his parents were really hypersensitive about that getting out. And um, that was how the beginning of his life was here in the U.S., you know, it was just something that he didn't talk about and he was very much in the shadows. And of course, the first few years of his life were tough to get acclimated to American culture. And you wrote that he they started out in Fremont and in fact moved to a different city at one point because they were worried, correct? Yeah. So his mom went to enroll him in third grade. This was just when they had gotten to the U.S. They had settled in Fremont. But when my when we went to enroll into elementary school there, you know, we did all the, the I think you have to do a testing of some sort to sort of see where your levels would be as a learner. And um, we went to enroll to school, and the school, for whatever reason, asked for um, a paperwork around immigration status. You know, and specifically, sort of um, like what uh, our status is. Are and and um, I'm not quite sure if it, they required. They asked for a social security number and um, this whole topic in general. My parents one didn't exactly know how to deal with, and two, um, just you know they were. Um, uh, it, it was scary to the point where they just I think avoided the topic altogether and tried to um, uh, wasn't sure how to proceed. They weren't sure how to proceed and. Um, you know, I think my mom uh, would tell us the story of how she, from that encounter, you know, sort of had this realization of like, oh my gosh, maybe we made a mistake to come here and it wouldn't be possible for, you know, for um, our, their kids to enter school and that that plan would, wouldn't have worked out. And they, she was walking to the local Asian supermarket and she was crying and just as luck literally would have it, um, a, a Thai woman. <laughs> and there aren't that necessarily that many Thai, um, you know, community members in Fremont or anything. And a, a Thai woman walked by and asked her what was wrong. And um, they started talking and she started sharing about um, not being able to enroll her, her kids in school. And uh, <clears throat> this woman said, oh, no, like I have my, nieces and nephews that have come here and have been able to enroll in schools in Lopitas and they are not green card holders and you know sort of have uh, made perhaps similar uh, situations and she said that you should definitely explore
explore uh, moving to Milpitas and get in contact with that school district. Um, you know, now looking back on it, I think it goes to show how how policies can really vary and how they are implemented. I think here in the U.S., in the public school system, they should not be able to uh, deny, you know, being in, uh, the right to education. And of course, had they told Fremont schools, we don't have papers, it, it might have been OK, but they just wanted to be safe. Exactly. And that really goes to show the fear, you know, that exists in undocumented communities where any little thing that might be might be routine to anyone else would be something that's really scary and just really intimidating for a family that's here illegally because they just think that any any little thing, any little slip up might lead to them being discovered. Obviously, New becomes an excellent student. How does he do it? Um, were there challenges being undocumented in terms of becoming one of the top students in the area? So he talks about having some trouble in his in his first few years in elementary school because, again, you know, he doesn't know the language and it takes him a long time to get used to American cultural norms, which is understandable. But when he goes into eighth grade, into middle school, he talks about really channeling that energy and that stress about being discovered into school. So he reads as much as he can, he writes as much as he can, and he just learns. So he's like a sponge that soaks it all in. And that was re- really the catapult for him. Um, so he had excelled in high school, excelled in college. And of course, he did encounter a lot of roadblocks, you know, that slowed him down. He told me that the school, the undergraduate college of his choice, UC Davis, actually rescinded a really prestigious scholarship when they realized that he was undocumented. A few months before school had started, was about to start, the school had called me in and said, hey, we're missing a few pieces of paperwork from your file. I went in and I talked to them and said, "I no, I didn't have um, a green card. I didn't have a social security number. And that was when they said, let us know when your status changes. And so he ended up at UC Berkeley. So that was one of the biggest examples of how he struggled and how there were a lot of setbacks that other students wouldn't have. So he goes on to UC Berkeley for his bachelor's degree, Harvard for a master's degree, UCSF for a medical degree, and and now is about to embark on a career. How does an undocumented student uh, do all this? Are, are they allowed to? Walk us through it. Yeah. So New is a recipient of DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And that essentially gives work permits and also deportation relief to young people who were brought here as children, just like New. And that has really been a game changer, particularly for students who are looking to get into the medical field, because that's been for now, at least, the only way that they've been allowed to work at hospitals or even get into medical school. So that was really instrumental for new success is having DACA protection. So DACA, uh, of course, President Obama put it in place uh, in what, 2012? Is that correct? Yes. And uh, hundreds of thousands of students, uh, hundreds of thousands of of people who also had military experience um, enrolled for these two-year reprieves. And then the Trump administration comes in and what happens? 
So in 2017, the administration cancels the program and gives DACA recipients a few months to renew applications or to submit applications before pulling the program. And they give Congress a few months to come to an agreement on how to salvage the program. But that never happens. So, you know, essentially all of these hundreds of thousands of dreamers are left just hanging, not knowing what's going to happen. So the Trump administration would like to end the program. But there's all these people that have already applied and have two-year extensions. And then the courts have stepped in and kept it alive. Yes, several several courts have stepped in, lower-level courts. And now the issue, the Trump administration is pushing uh, the Supreme Court to review the issue. But so far, there's been no response or any indication that the Supreme Court will hear it anytime soon. So it's possible that it might actually get kicked into 2020. And could someone apply today to be a DACA recipient? Yeah, so that's a little tricky. Um, Current DACA recipients, let's say you got DACA in 2012 and you've been renewing it every two years ever since, you can still apply for DACA and renew it. But new people who have never been a recipient of the program cannot submit new applications. So it's really only for the people that already had it in the first place. Okay, got it. So I know you've talked to a lot of DACA recipients uh, since you've been at The Chronicle and then in, in previous years uh, as a reporter. What have you found about them? What has been the impact of the program on them? I think it's just allowed them to get so much further in their education and in their careers than they probably would have without DACA. DACA since day one was seen as a huge game changer for young people who really felt like they you know, didn't have a path toward higher education or a path toward professional careers. And this really turned that around for them. So I've heard so many DACA recipients say, you know, this allowed me to get a job in what I graduated from, or this allowed me to have a higher paying job. Just so many things that probably they would not have had had they not had DACA. And that goes for new as well. You know, he probably would not have made it to UCSF without DACA. And obviously, a lot of the arguments in favor of DACA are around people like New, who came at age nine. They don't necessarily feel any kinship to their homeland. They've started to make a life in the United States. What is the argument for getting rid of it? You know, the Trump administration, um, as we know, is has a very hard line stance on immigration, on all things immigration. So the argument is these people, regardless of whether or not they were children, yes, they deserve some compassion because they didn't have a decision on whether or not they came here, they were brought here, but at the same time, they're here illegally. And so that's really the argument that opposers or critics of DACA maintain, you know, is that they don't deserve to have legal work permits or they don't deserve a reprieve from deportation if they're here illegally. So there's sort of an argument about incentives, taking away all incentives for people that are illegal. Exactly. Okay. Looking ahead, Tatiana, with New and his uh, budding career as a doctor, um, what is going to happen to him? Is he going to be able to have a medical career in the United States? Is he going to be protected from deportation? Yeah, so that's a really um, interesting but tricky question. I think for the time being, he obviously has 
tons of support within the UCSF community. He's going to start his three-year residency in just a few weeks, which is a very exciting time for him. Um, you know, but long-term, as with anyone who has DACA, has a two-year window until that status expires, you know. So for him, after those two years, and for everyone else, it's really unclear depending on what the Supreme Court rules if it gets to the Supreme Court. So he could, in theory, get continued extensions. Uh, there could be some policy where uh, the, the country allows for a path to citizenship for people like him. And he could, in theory, be eventually deported after his protections run out. Yeah, that's correct. You know, it, it really depends on what goes on nationally when it comes to DACA. All right, Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you to immigration reporter Tatiana Sanchez, to Jiriyut New Latvinskorn, to Libby Coleman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.